Welcome to Diabretic, a podcast where a T1D artist and a T1D expert come together to bake some bread, and then we break bread with smart and interesting people as we talk through the human in health and technology. I'm Stephen Horrocks, PhD and expert in experiences with diabetes and devices. And I'm Melissa Horrocks, T1D artist, baker, and creative raw things. And today, our episode is tortillas. Tortillas! Yes, and diabetes service dogs with Taylor Johnson. So excited about this episode. It's a fantastic conversation. You're not going to want to miss this one. All right, our bread for this episode is tortillas. Yes. Taylor mentioned it's one of her favorite foods. Her third favorite food? I believe third favorite <laughs> carb. Carb. Okay, yeah. Like carb Specification. Specific food? I don't know. But. We get this conversation every once in a while about, <laughs> you know, when we talk about, okay, well, what's your favorite bread? Whatever. It's like, well, bread's not my favorite, like, starchy thing. So here's <laughs> my thing that I actually like the most, but like bread's pretty good. But tortillas are bread. Yeah. They're flatbread. And they're super good. Yeah. We've never made flour tortillas before. Um, we haven't? We, no, I feel we, like we'd, oh, we made corn tortillas. We have tortillas. made corn tortillas on multiple occasions. Mm-hmm. Really good. Very different process, though, yeah. from these flour tortillas. There's no developing of gluten and the strength in the dough in that way anyway with corn because there's no gluten in corn. <laughs> so this is a whole different tortilla experience. Beast. Beast. Only because we tried to make them <laughs> with our two toddlers who were insane today, like... I don't know. Something's in the air, but it was like tantrum, tantrum, tortilla, tantrum, tantrum, burn tortilla, scrape, (laughs) (laughs) scrape the, (laughs) scale it off. And then we gave up and made them after later. Yeah. Much later. So, Um, which actually worked to our benefit. Yeah. Cause we gave the kids food. They were just hangry. So we fed them and then they were like cheerful little hellions. I don't know. (laughs) They're always. (laughs) It's uh, always madness. Bread here. tip. Uh, feed the kids so they're not crazy. <laughs> no. Um, but so that time frame was actually super useful because uh, those couple of tortillas that were meh, so-so early on and then that got burned, uh, <laughs> they were they were way too thick. We were trying to get these rolled out. We were trying to get them to work and they just wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And usually, and here is an actual bread tip. Whether this is tortillas or something else that needs to be rolled out, um, whether we're talking pizza dough, whether we're talking something like an enriched dough that needs to be rolled out like cinnamon rolls or something like that, if the bread won't do it, if you try to roll it out, push it out, press it out, whatever it is it's trying to they do. It keeps shrinking back. It's elastic, right? Comes King right of sound back. effects over here. <laughs> There, that's more what we're talking about. I don't know what that other voice sound was, but um, but if it's doing that, that means that the gluten strands need to relax, and so they need more time. So, uh, calling attention to the recipes again. Now we've talked about some issues with time in recipes mm-hmm. before, especially like blog specific recipes. Um. Oftentimes, there are some weird miscalculations that show up there, 
uh, or misestimates about how long yeah, certain things take. I mean, depending on where you live, that can affect kind of Big time. how and temperatures. There's just so many things that affect how your bread is rising or resting. Right. And so in this case, um, we were basing the ingredients list and part of the process off of a serious eats recipe um, not produced by one of the primary contributors so we'll put an asterisk there which is important <laughs> but they were talking about a 10 to 15 minute rest for these little dough balls um, that's not enough or it wasn't enough yeah I mean we ended up waiting what about an hour about an hour and if you go and take a look at some of these other recipes by folks like Rick Martinez, if folks aren't familiar with Rick Martinez, <laughs> uh, go find Rick Martinez. I mean, his button-down shirts alone will dry in. Or maybe we'll say, unbuttoned-down <laughs> shirts. I was trying to be sly about it, but... Ow. Oh, um, my God. <laughs> and his nails, too. Unbelievable. Anyway, um, he has a series with awesome. Food 52. He has a series with the Babish Culinary Universe, as it's so-called now. Um, <laughs> he's been a contributor with the Food Network and with Bon Appetit before it torpedoed and with everybody. He's been everywhere. Um, and he's pretty fantastic, but he has a recipe on the Food Network that we'll link in the show notes as well. And his recipe makes it clear, you got to let these things rest for about an hour. So we do that. And what do you know? Yeah, they, they can were actually amazing. roll out. But so good. And uh, really like pillowy, soft. Yeah, we were kind of talking about the structure of this. I mean, when we, we buy kind of the raw tortillas you have to cook a lot yeah. for like quesadillas and things like that, mm -hmm. um, which are definitely better than just the store-bought flour tortillas. Um, right. But there's something about the structure that isn't quite as, I don't know, tight. I don't know if that's the, uh, there's yeah. something about. You get a certain amount of chew mm -hmm. from the fresh tortillas that we make it here at home that you can't really be reproduced Yeah, in really the store-bought stuff. Um, and the flavor, too, you get to mess with what you include. We didn't have lard. And so that is a major drawback on our mm -hmm. recipe tonight. Um, so we ended up having to use shortening. But the the texture was so good. Yep. And we ended up, after the kids <laughs> were in bed, buttered up two of those tortillas, threw on some cinnamon sugar, rolled them up. Mm. Took us back to our oh honeymoon. My. <laughs> oh, my word. Oh, yeah. Cinnamon roll-up uh. tortillas. <laughs> we would we walk were, uh, San Diego. We would walk down this street every day, and this guy was just making fresh tortillas, and then they, with cinnamon sugar in the middle, and then roll them up. Oh rolled my up gosh, tight. So throw good. it in some foil, mm. and we'd take that on the go. Oh my word! Because so. <laughs> we would walk a mile. We were young, <laughs> <laughs> young and poor, and fifty cent cinnamon tortilla. That's <laughs> great. So, anyway, nostalgia trip. Delicious. <laughs> Give these a try. We'll we'll link a couple of recipes that uh, you should definitely try out. All right. Our guest today is Taylor Johnson. Uh, Taylor has been active in diabetes-related work, generally speaking, for quite some time. 
and you may have seen some of her uh, work related to medical racism, things like insulin affordability and diabetes and health generally. Uh, she is also a board member of the Diabolemia Helpline, something that we will touch on here uh, as we talk through some of these things as well. But one of the things that she has uh, written about and talked about quite a bit, especially the last few years, has been diabetes service dogs or, or service animals generally, especially her dog, Claire. And hopefully we will have a chance to uh, spend some time talking through what that experience is like. And uh, so, Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, so we usually like to start out with this big picture question. Uh, what is your relationship with bread? And what is your relationship with diabetes? All right. So bread is probably my third favorite carb. Uh, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a true Southerner. So potatoes, rice, uh, fight back and forth for that top two spot. Yes. Um, and then then, then bread, um, tortillas, uh, depending on whether or not you count them as a bread, um, probably be above general breadish, like white bread and things like that. And then normal breads. But I love Fair bread. enough. Yeah. Tortillas bread. are totally bread. Flatbread uh, is bread, right? There, there we go. Yeah. So tortillas <laughs> count. Absolutely. I'm in Texas, so tortillas are essentially a food group. Yes. <laughs> so there are a couple times that I've had folks who have answered that question by basically saying, listen, you know, starches in general or like carb things in general, I'm there. So <laughs> bread, eh, whatever. But um. I'm very so, specific. I feel yes. strongly about my carbohydrates. <laughs> yes. Understandably so. I am too, frankly. So, um, and so what, uh, what is your relationship with diabetes? Oh, diabetes and I have a complicated relationship. I <laughs> usually refer to it more as a situationship <laughs> because it, re <laughs> it really changes. It really kind of ebbs and flows. It's not always the healthiest relationship. But I think we're definitely sure. doing better now, kind of 15 years in, than we were in the first five, certainly. Um, so I think I have a pretty healthy relationship with diabetes. I try um, pretty hard not to characterize diabetes or make it something like it's outside of myself. So even yeah. thinking about it in terms of a relationship, I don't do that often. Oh, okay. Um, because... For me, it's just like I have two hands, I need glasses because I have terrible eyesight, my pancreas is kind of eh, and we have to work around it, um, but it's not this big other thing. It's just yeah. one of those things that's a part of who I am. I have to live with it, uh, and we take it day by day. So that's a really interesting point, and I'm glad that you raise that in the context of me asking about this as a relationship, right? Because it does that... My language, and I guess this is me kind of looking inward in the way that I'm framing things as well, because that does imply something external, mm -hmm. right? Um, and certainly a diagnosis is an external thing, but the experience is not, right? Yeah. And so I, um, there's a lot of kind of moving parts to that that stem from disability studies. And I think that's a, that's a really uh, interesting framing. Uh, how... How did you get to a place where that's kind of your understanding of kind of you and diabetes at this point? Because I know you said that there have been a lot of changes and shifts in the last 15 years, right? 
Yeah, so uh, I'm a mental health educator. Uh, that's that's what I do. I'm a nine to five. I spend a lot of time talking to people, talking to people about how they view various things and thinking about mental health. Um, so conversely, I spend a lot of time in therapy uh, and we talk about framing a ton. And one of the things that I kind of realized probably around the year 10 mark is that if I had to think about diabetes as something that existed outside of me or something that I had to conquer, it wasn't productive. Um, I always felt like we were in a really like tug relationship and like back and forth where when things were going well, I was, it was great. And when things were bad, they were really bad and I had no ownership of them Mm -hmm. um, because these were, it was outside of me. Um, So being able to really kind of take ownership of being a diabetic, having that experience, and also taking more ownership over my treatment. So I went like two years without an endocrinologist, which was an experience uh, and insurance. And so I became the only person responsible for my diabetes. It was mine. Uh, And for me, that was a really freeing experience. Uh, And it really, it was hard, but it also really kind of changed how I saw what I was doing. and I'm a control freak. I admit that about myself. <laughs> I I like having my hands in all of it and having full control of all of the moving parts. Yeah. Uh, and so really being able to just kind of, this is who I am. This is part of my experience. Um, I find really empowering. Yeah. And I, that's that a lot of that kind of shifting language and overtime language that you're talking through there is really fascinating. And I also, very much appreciate the way that this is being framed in relation to mental health discussions as well. Um, Because I, in the context of chronic illness in general, um, and diabetes specifically, mental health can often be framed, especially in in clinical spaces, as an aside, Uh as something that uh, you know, if you can get a reference for a therapist, that's often a kind of offhanded, well, you know, they're all good kind of response and, um, that's not, that's not particularly helpful or productive. It's not. My dearest wish is that we would do some kind of mental health check-ins as frequently as we see endos or as frequently as we see kind of PCPs and get blood work done and starting a diagnosis, do those kind of check-ins because my relationship has certainly changed with diabetes over time. I don't know anyone's relationship who hasn't kind of gone through different stages. And so I'm like, periodically, just check-ins would have been nice for someone to ask, like, how are you doing? How's it going? Where are we? How have the last three months been? And right. not strictly been talking about my A1C. Um, yeah. Or let's scrape those numbers from the devices and see what yep. they say. Right. Um, because even in, even in the context of those endo appointments and others, even when there are conversations about mental health, I, I understand that they are trained as endocrinologists, right? They're not Absolutely. trained as either psychiatrists or, or therapists. Um, and there's some very particular ways of going about that conversation that mm-hmm. require that kind of training. Right? It really does. And that's what 
So I'm so kind of happy to see more and more uh, folks who are type one and in mental health. Uh, that's certainly how I shifted gears in college and ended up going towards mental health versus yeah. I was totally one of those kids who was fascinated by doctors because I saw them so much. And I was like, oh, I want to be a doctor. Right. And I had a very kind biology teacher who was like uh, in college, who was like, you absolutely don't want to be a doctor. You don't, you, you, you don't want to be a doctor. You're, you're not going to fail my class, but you're going to come real close to it. You hate this. Please, <laughs> please take your psych major and go talk to people. And I was like, yeah. fair, fair. And he's totally, totally right. I hate, I would have been a terrible doctor, but I love, <laughs> m- mental health is a much better fit. Um, but yeah, those are the things you learn is that there are such specific skill sets and how we have conversations and how we talk to people yeah. matters so, so much. And so as a mental health educator yourself, um, connected to some of those circles in particular, do you find that it is easy to find therapists and others who have that training that, that have some kind of background or understanding with chronic illness or disability? Um, because it seems like some background and connection makes a big difference for those who are uh, living in, in diagnosis, for lack of a better term. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's hard. Um, therapy, finding a good therapist in general is hard just because that relationship has to be a good fit. Um, finding someone who specializes or has that experience in chronic illness and has like a conception of it that probably isn't going to be more harmful to folks with chronic illness is difficult. Right. Uh, and from the standpoint of someone who's working towards licensure uh, to work with folks, a lot of the training that therapists go through isn't the most disability friendly. Right. Uh, the language that we talk about or that we're taught uh, surrounding folks with chronic illness in general isn't the greatest. I complain about it in a lot of my classes and in my workplace loudly. Yeah. <laughs> I am that person. Like we can't just call people sick. Like that's like, no. So right. yeah. So, so a lot of, they're still playing catch up. Um, mm-hmm. Mental health is playing catch up in a lot of areas, um, diversity, inclusion, all kinds of things. Uh, and right. the chronic illness world is another place where it's going to it's going to take a while uh, and it's probably going to take a lot more of us who have the experience kind of being in the field to really kind of push through change. And that, uh, you know, frankly and unfortunately, that seems uh, to kind of be the standard in every industry. Yep. Right. Um, regardless of how that push is coming from outside. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the, the presence of experience inside makes a huge difference. Um, so a lot of this conversation around mental health and various resources and things related to, uh, diabetes, chronic illness, disability, um, one side of that conversation that I think is really fascinating with a lot of your work and some of your writing, especially recent publications and things as you've talked through some of this Um, is that's one side of experiences with service animals that can be really rewarding. Um, And so I wanted to ask you kind of how you first got involved with or connected with uh, service animals and trainers. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a process. I don't think people 
certainly not people with fake service dogs. I don't think people realize just how involved uh, and how much work it is to get a service animal. Um, I heard about diabetic alert dogs because I was, as you do as a college student, when you're supposed to be doing homework, I was on the (laughs) internet reading, going down Tumblr rabbit holes um, in like 2014 that I had no business being on. Um, And I remember seeing someone with a service dog and they had just gotten a dog because they had had uh, a seizure. And I was Mm. like, huh seems fake moved on didn't think about it again for like two years i was like cool cute dog moving on that seems ridiculous um fast forward i was finally able to get a dexcom um like 10 11 years post diagnosis um and what i found is that one i did not care about dexcom alarms at all whatsoever uh still don't not even the scary crying baby one (laughs) Uh, i would sleep through it throw my phone or i just didn't care yeah um the other problem especially as somebody who lived alone is that dexcom did not catch my loaves quick enough Mm. Uh, and this was in 2015 2016 so of course tech has gotten a ton better but dexcom did not catch my loaves fast enough Uh, i'm a person who is fairly insulin sensitive mm-hmm. and so particularly in the texas heat i will drop fast and i will drop very very quickly and cgms right. yeah the tech just wasn't there at the time to catch that i had a few very scary kind of incidents um i almost kind of passed out at a pretty major coffee shop here during the summer because i just didn't feel like i was low and the next thing you know i was at 30 um, yeah 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 Yeah. So I had a few incidents like that. Combine that with I very much lived alone. My family is four and a half hours away. Um, So I needed an alternative to CGMs, um, especially since I was now wearing a pump for the first time uh, as well. And so I started doing some research about service animals, kind of looked at some nationwide organizations and then stumbled upon, got super duper lucky in that there was an organization that trained service animals 30, 45 minutes away from me. Oh, wow. So I live in New Braunfels, or I live in Austin, and they were located in New Braunfels. Um, So like 30 minutes. It was really kind of super lucky. And I definitely think Claire and I were meant to be because the odds of that happening are pretty wild. Um, Right. And they were really picky, which is what kind of sold me kind of on them versus trying to get a dog through other organizations. Because if you look at a lot of people, they're like, yo, if you give us this amount of money, we'll give you a dog. We'll give you whatever you want. Yeah, (laughs) we'll give you you whatever you want for like X amount of cash. And there are very little like parameters around it. Once you get your dogs, there aren't a lot of follow up. And that mm-hmm. scared me because yeah. I hadn't owned a dog since I was like six. So I was like, oh, no, if I get a dog and take a dog home, I need to be able to call someone and be like, uh, <laughs> I think the dog is broken, <laughs> which has happened more than once. Sure. Um, yeah. And so I really love this organization because they had a list of qualifications. Like we don't typically do dogs to kids because right. it's hard to have uh, dogs in schools all day. You have to come down, meet the owners, meet the puppies. We all have to kind of come to a consensus about you. We've got to like come do some home visits, check everything out, make sure you're actually set up for a dog and you're not just going to turn our dog into an expensive pet. Right. Um, yeah. And it was it 
it was an intense like interview process, like phone interviews, in-person interview, and then finally you got to like pick a puppy. So they was really intense, but I was very comforted by it because I was yeah. like, okay, if you're going through all this trouble, that means you're invested. Um, so I can expect like a decent product because at that point I was still very skeptical. I was right. like, okay, Dexcom is like a bazillion dollars. If it can't catch my loaves, what's a dog going to do? Everybody can get a dog, right? Right, right. Yeah. I was the very... dog around the corner at the shelter. Yeah, right? right. Like I can go to the shelter and it'll be cool. I was very wrong. Uh, the sec- I did the phone interview, go down for the in-person interview. Don't think anything about my blood sugar on like the 30 minute drive down. Right. Open up my car door and immediately there are like five dogs in my face. And they're just like, <laughs> hello. And I'm like, oh, oh my goodness. Giant labs. There's like a doodle. I'm like, hi guys. It's a good thing I'm not afraid of dogs. Like y'all are <laughs> lovely, but please get out of my face. I guess and if then, you're afraid of dogs, that might not have been the best place. Anyway. You know, you <laughs> but, know, you, yeah. apparently they got people who are much more skittish than I am because some of the dogs are huge. Yeah. But um, she was like, this tiny little woman because of course it's this tiny lady and she's like oh it's not me you need to check your blood sugar and I'm like what and she's like check your blood sugar because that's all that's all the dogs I have loose right now and they came straight over to you so you need to check and so I sure enough pulled out my little kit tested my blood sugar and I was at like 240 something and they all got treats and I I was a believer at that point (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so from there that's wild yeah, it was a really crazy experience. It was like I, I did not think this was a real thing, but yeah. it is. They're freakily good at what they do. So what I I what I didn't know is that well, and I guess this is probably particular to some uh, organizations or entities that are training, right? This wouldn't be necessarily uniform across the board, mm-hmm. but um, the. The process of training would have to start as puppies. Yeah. Right? They so that makes it. sense. But uh-huh. I hadn't necessarily thought about that relationship being established that early on. Yeah, absolutely. So you, like the organization I got, Claire in particular, you typically had to wait until they went out to test new puppies. Mm. Um, and their kind of particular orientation is that they go to shelters and test shelter puppies or they take like police academy dropouts (laughs) (laughs) because they already have, they already have like the basic obedience training. Um, And so often they have a work drive. It just may not be to catch criminals. Um, So they go and test shelters and so they will call and they're like, Hey, we have like, we have these puppies. They've been tested. We think they will be great. Come meet the puppies. See if you kind of form a connection with any puppies but yeah so i met claire she thinks she was eight weeks old okay yeah yeah, like she was super she was super little when they got her from the shelter she was actually my second choice i try not to say that too loudly because she'll (laughs) get grumpy about it um i because i was a a woman who lived alone i wanted a large male service dog right like i wanted a giant dog i love big dogs i grew up with big dogs that's what i wanted i ended up with a golden retriever who was clearly the runt of her litter and that's why she was dumped <laughs> at the shelter. <laughs> Claire is, uh, yep, you hear me talking about you. Here she there is. She is. <laughs> yep, she is all of 45 pounds. <laughs> yes. she, yeah, she is half the size of a normal kind of golden retriever. 
Uh, and we love her. All the sass makes up for it. But we definitely had to go. We had to, like, play and bond with the puppies. Mm-hmm. But she started doing... We did her first, like, public access outing where we went to a restaurant, had lunch, walked around in Target with her so she could practice um, how yeah. to be out in the world when she was nine, ten weeks old. Like, wow. She, she was an itty-bitty puppy. Yeah, I... Uh, it's funny kind of hearing that process with such a young dog and thinking about my own dog that's now almost 10 years old and how difficult it would be taking her in and around places because she simply was not trained in that way, right? Um, But yeah, but they would have to be trained in those kinds of spaces and different types of scenarios from very early on to avoid that kind of uh, skittishness in scenarios where they will be right yeah so they kind of do they went everywhere so they went out and like sat and practiced kind of laying down and placing while a marching band practice or like in their kennel they would play thunderstorm noises or like sound we live in texas so like sounds of gunshot recordings and like any Mm -hmm. kind of random things um to get them as desensitized as possible and like granted common misconception is that service dogs are perfect and they're never going to act out in public and like that's not true they're still they are still puppies yeah Yeah, they still get startled um certain things will still claire will look at me and be like yo what is this and i'll have to be like (laughs) it's okay we're fine um plain noises Mm -hmm. our whole experience but for the most part yeah it's pretty it's pretty intense training when they're little just to really get them pretty unflappable yeah. So what does that training kind of process look like after that initial period when, um, cause was she still living there with them for that period of time with that initial training before coming then and living with you? Oh my goodness. Yes. So we, they have to stay at the kennel. It's so hard, but they are essentially doing training just like we go to work. Yeah. So they did training and then they would have nap time. And then often they would continue to do kind of training and socialization where they mm. would have kids come down or they would take different batches of puppies in the house to get them used to being house trained. Uh, and they would take them on separate outings and things of that nature. So she kind of stayed at the kennel, typically service dogs are finished training if they're trained by an organization at about a year old. Oh, okay. Um, Yes, the year is typically about the mark when they go home. Stubborn, stubborn boots down here came home a little early because um, she, <laughs> she, she is truly sassy, and she yes. came home for her first home visit. Because once they had like six months or so, we started doing home visits. Oh, okay. Um, right, it's acclimating. It's yeah, yeah. So, so just how is she going to do at home? We took a trip, um, like a short trip up to Dallas, which is like four hours-ish from where I am to visit my brother and things like that. Yeah. Just to kind of, how are they going to do in cars and whatnot? Um, and then at the end of all that, and more importantly, once you have hopefully raised enough funds for your service dog, your dog gets to come home with you. <laughs> yeah. Um. Which is a whole other side of that conversation, right? Because yeah, um, these services being provided by the organization and also the animal, uh, those services are no joke, very intensive. The way you're talking about this, this is a very intensive program, mm-hmm. um, which means people need to be compensated for all that labor too, right? Um, what kind of ballpark 
are we are we talking about here in terms of what that would cost? Yeah, absolutely. I'm pretty sure I am contractually obligated not to say exactly how much I paid for Claire. Yeah, but that's why I was talking ball- ranges. Yeah, We're talking ranges. yeah. <laughs> ballpark, ballpark, like fifteen. I've seen as much fifteen thousand. I've also seen them to be as much as forty or fifty thousand dollars. It mm. can be really wild in the range, um, yeah. and I always encourage people to do their research about different organizations and also think about follow through and like what services are provided after you get the dog. Right. So that's also an important kind of piece of that cost. So yeah. with Claire, I can call the organization that trained her at any point and be like, yo, she's being weird. Like any idea what's going on here? Or we tried to get on an escalator the other day and Claire freaked out. What are some training tips I can use? And they'll like right. walk me through things um, and things of that nature. So that follow up is an important piece as well. Hmm. Um, but it can be really prohibitively expensive. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I was super lucky in that at the time. I essentially had a full-time job and then I had another essential full-time job and that's how I was, that's how I was able to get Claire, but I was pretty fortunate in that I am a single human with no like kiddos. Um, and at that point I was still on my mom's insurance. So I, yeah. So my kind of overall expenses made it possible, but it was a, it was a rough year of working two jobs, but totally, totally worth it. Yeah, lots of, I mean, working two jobs and also working with her, right? Because you were yeah. involved in in uh, getting to know her. She's working to get to know you during that whole period of time as well. That's like a third job. Right? It was, absolutely. It, and it took some work. Yeah, I, and, it, and it probably still does, right? I know you're kind of hit, uh, gesturing toward that as well. Um, so how long have you... Uh, had Claire with you then? Yeah, it has been five years. Four years? What is this? 2022? 2022 now. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Yeah, Claire, you're going to be six in September, so five years. (laughs) Five years, yeah. So, uh, you know, five years in at this point, what kinds of things uh, in that five years, you know, some of the, there are a handful of things that are fairly like, I guess you could say obvious about what would be um, really fulfilling or useful about having a uh, service animal there with you. But are, are there any parts of that relationship with her that have been like surprising to you or new things that, that pop up that are uh, a little different or change over time, things like that? Yeah, so there's the whole just intangible of having something or someone to take care of. Um, And I will say as someone who was a fairly negligent diabetic, um, having to like know that I have to get up, eat, do things (laughs) so that my blood sugar stays relatively within the range that Claire likes is helpful. Like you don't know disappointment until you have like a puppy staring at you at four o'clock in the morning because you're not (laughs) sleeping and the dog also isn't sleeping. And so you're both just sad and want to be asleep and you're like, okay, this can't happen again tomorrow. Um, And just things like it forces you out of the house. Like she 
service dogs mm-hmm. like to work. They like jobs, yeah. um, particularly in that puppy phase. On top of her normal job, Claire also required like an hour and a half of outside time during the day, during that yeah. puppy phase. Um, so we would go spend an hour walking, kind of running in the park before we'd go to work because I worked at 12 to 10 wild shift at that point sure. and the effect that just that physical activity like we all know physical activity tends to even out blood sugars and can be really helpful right i did not anticipate that being a thing but because it is now a non-negotiable kind of part of our like daily routine that's obviously been a benefit and then just the mental yeah. mental health benefits because yeah dogs who doesn't love dogs yeah no there's you know there there's a there's a real meaningful i say human connection uh but that so. doesn't necessarily do justice to them and and their experience either though right because uh there there is something there's something a little different you know and even as we're speaking it's funny that because uh, i i mentioned we have a dog we also have a cat and oh. uh the cat snuck in and is trying to find some papers to sit on and crinkle so that it shows up in the recording. So, <laughs> but, um, so I, I wanted to, uh, also talk a little bit about your chapter in the recent publication, Undoing Diabetes. This was, uh, edited by Heather Walker, who was a previous guest on the show and Bianca Frazier, who will be upcoming as well. Um, and in that in that piece, you are kind of writing through some really interesting and important sides of how living with a support animal gets really complicated in the context of other social interactions with other people, right? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. So I was I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to. Like, what got you to writing that piece? And then we can talk a little bit about what what you were kind of doing there. All right. So it's interesting. I think I saw the kind of initial call for kind of abstract and things and thought, like, that is for people who are going to write much more, like, academic-y, have real cool things to say. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not even like going to do this uh and then i got a dm i think from heather i think from heather and maybe bianca and they were like hey we would like to include something about service animals and i think again i was like hey this seems like it's going to be very kind of a lot more serious than anything i have to say um i don't necessarily know if i have the right experience for this and also there's no way i'm going to be able to talk about this unless i talk about my experiences as a black person right? Um, because that changes how I experience diabetes in general, how people mm-hmm. interact with me. And it's certainly for lack of a better word, colors my interactions with Claire as well, Yeah, because I am a part of different service dog communities and things like that online. And my experiences and the experiences of other kind of non-white um, service animal handlers are like, our experiences are very different. Right. Um, and so it's like, I'm not sure what y'all are looking for, but I'm absolutely like, that's going to have to be included <laughs> yeah. just a forewarning. And so what was their response? I mean, I now have some kind of background and interaction with them as well. So, but what was their response as you were kind of negotiating this space? Yeah, they were like, well, yeah, we've seen your Instagram. We don't think that that's going to be a thing that you wouldn't include. Uh, yeah. If that's been a big part of your experience, 
please feel free to describe that however you'd like. And I was yeah. like, oh, okay, that makes me feel better. <laughs> and so, uh, so we have this piece then, how it has come together. And uh, there's... I, the title, and I'll I'll put the title out here because I really like this. The please don't pet reflections on life with my diabetes alert dog, and um, it starts out with this incident at the San Angelo Hotel. It was San Angelo, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that was I was gonna say. So I got my master's in 2018 and mm-hmm. had decided like, okay, I'll make the drive out to San Angelo. It's not super far from Austin. It'll just be like a fun little date, like a fun kind of overnight trip. Go with my mom and my sister. We'll do some nice stuff. Maybe stop, have lunch on the way back. Be a fun time to just kind of walk the stage. I had never been to San Angelo because right. uh, um, most of my program was online. So I was like, oh, we'll go. Won't be a big deal. Book the hotel. Um, service animals are allowed at hotels. Let's mm-hmm. just yep. say that now. They're allowed everywhere people can go unless it is going to pose a significant health hazard and or they are misbehaving. Right. Um, so literally get there. It's kind of late. We go to check in. I kind of have my bag, have Claire. I always have her kind of attached to my waist. Um, mm-hmm. So I use a leash that kind of has her attached to my lace and she just kind of hangs out beside me. The second I step in the door, um, some the lady behind the desk kind of starts, you can't have a dog in here. Uh, absolutely mm. no dogs. And I was like, whoa. It's like, all right, let's, let's kind of back it up a little bit. And I was like, I'm sorry. She, maybe you can't see her vest or whatever, but she's a service animal. Uh, she's a medical alert dog. She's here with me for the night. Uh, and the woman's like, absolutely not. There are no dogs in my hotel. And I was like, Excuse me. Um, I was like, I get that. I was like, I know that that's probably the normal policy and whatever. I was like, but she is a service animal as kind of defined by the American Disabilities Act. She is here to assist me with a disability. Uh, And she was really kind of emphatic. No, absolutely not. No dogs Mm. in my hotel. You need to get out of here. Um, And it was a really kind of ugly incident that lasted two-ish hours. Mm. Um, that only resolved when I called the owner of the kind of service dog org where I got clear. Right. Uh, Kim often describes herself as a mediator. She's like, if, if you're too upset to have this conversation with this person, just give them my phone number. Let me talk to them. I know the law backwards and forwards. Mm -hmm. I can explain it to them. And so after me and yelled at for 30 minutes, I was like, I cannot do this anymore. Right. Um, so I gave her a call and I was like, hey, this is the person who my dog was trained with. Can, can she have a conversation with you? Maybe something that I am not saying just is not sinking in. Um, right. And so she refused. <laughs> she course, refused to kind of, of course, just take yeah. my phone and do it. Uh, and so then I had to give Kim the number to the hotel to have her to call. And they had a conversation that way. Um, I don't know entirely what was said. I do know it was not all pleasant. Um, I do know that even Kim, who has a pretty, she has a really long kind of threshold and a lot of patience, more than most humans do, I'd suspect. Um, Because part of what that conversation included was why it's not my fault she's too stupid um, Mm. to be a diabetic. Like, why does she need a dog? Like, you don't need a dog. You just need to eat less. Like, it was a really 
kind of nasty interaction. Um, I don't wow. think anything that bad has happened since. Yeah. Certainly, we've had kind of access troubles, but that has been the most aggressive kind of way someone has questioned Claire. And yeah, that aggressiveness is so gross. It's just so gross, right? And the way that you talk into that, I think, is really important, right? Because one of the things that really struck me in reading the way that you narrate this story in your chapter and then hearing you relay that here as well, um, it becomes fairly clear fairly quickly the way that resistance to the presence of service animals becomes a uh, kind of a proxy, more or less, right, for resistance to a person. Yeah, it often right. gets very personal very, very quickly. Yeah. And often I'm like, you're not, this is not about the dog. Um, it And generally, particularly here in Texas, uh, I've lived here all my life. I understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm real well versed in that particular kind of flavor of racism where yeah. it, it, it would have, if it wasn't clear, it would have been something else. Right. Um, and so certainly that interaction in particular, she... San Angeles, West Texas. There aren't a lot of people like me who who look like me there. Certainly not a lot on graduation weekend. Right. Um, so I think she was just like not having it. Uh, and that often comes with the assumption that because black people are criminal, we I have a fake dog. Of course. Right. Yeah. Like it has to be a fake dog or that I stole my dog because she's a golden retriever and black people only have pit bulls and Dobermans. Like it's right. weird. The assumption For sure. <laughs> that people have. Well, and then when that became not clear or that became clearly not the case, as that was reaffirmed by someone who wasn't you. Right. Yep. All of these uh, gets so like muddy and again, so gross. Um, then there had to be something else, though. Right. So, okay. So that's not the issue. Well, then I guess the issue is just the fact they can't take care of themselves. Yep. Right. And I know that that's something that people with diabetes run into in a lot of different contexts, but the intersection of race and chronic illness and or race and disability really changes the game. It always does. And it always will. Um, because we're talking about two ways that people are stigmatized simultaneously, right? Um, so this piece, um, it, it opens up a lot of conversations, not only in these physical spaces as well, right? Because as I, as I was hearing you kind of talk about the way that this person behind the desk was resistant to you, resistant to Claire, resistant to any description from whoever was on the phone. Mm -hmm. um, it was signaling a lot about the internet and diabetes communities too. Um, because I, I, I mean, frankly, this plays out in all the diabetes time. online community all the time too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's diabetes communities online and off are, not always my favorite places. Mm. Um, yeah, you follow me on Instagram. This is my like fourth diabetes account. Um, I have tried a bazillion times to like make connections with the diabetes community. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I always end up leaving and kind of opting out because right. 
there's no place for me there. Um, this current kind of where we're at on Instagram, I think I've been able to curate my experience so that it <laughs> is so that it is much more kind of intentionally filled with people who are more like me. Yeah. But I don't go to diabetes meetups in Austin. Um, yeah. Been there, done that. They're not friendly places yeah. um, for people of color. Um, there's a level of kind of gatekeeping and keeping certain people out that is, I think it's much more overt than people think that they're being. Yeah. I think a lot of times we hear bias and they're like, oh, they didn't mean to. And I'm like, no, mm. no, you do. Hold on. Do. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I know what just like, happened. I heard like, the oh, words myself. Like, no. okay. Yeah. I'm yeah. Like, it doesn't take a lot of thought. If you like look at a lot of, look at a lot of these pages. Look at look at who's super popular. Look at where we're throwing a lot of our support and our money. Right. Look at who we're listening to. Like I think those voices of authority are such a problem in the online community because it doesn't matter what I say unless it's validated by someone who does not look like me. Right. Because um, I mean, structurally speaking, mm-hmm. people who have some kind of institutional authority regardless of whether we're talking about medical professionals or people who are affiliated with a number of nonprofit organizations that have pretty uh, pronounced presences mm-hmm. in diabetes communities. Um, uh, roles of authority are spaces that have been historically and remain predominantly male, predominantly white, predominantly upper middle class or higher, Able, otherwise able-bodied people with diabetes, and sometimes not with diabetes, and that's a whole Absolutely. other side of this conversation uh-huh. too, <laughs> right? And so, you know, so some, and I see this a lot. Some people point to that and say something along the lines of, "No, it's not about having to be validated by a white man. It's just the person who has the authority to say it." And it's like, okay, so let's take that back a couple steps then, and see first of all why it is that this person supposedly is the one that has the authority to say this, right? Yeah. I think that's an interesting argument on the internet, though, where people say anything. And I have quite, like, there are quite literally times um, post-2020 when everyone was suddenly interested in hearing from people of color right? where I would say something and it would be fairly generic, right? Or I would yeah. say, like, y'all, y'all, like the diabetes community boogeyman is black people. Like, it, it's fat black people. I think that is what I think that's the most that's the thing I got the most like pushback and like ugly like really nasty things in my DMs for saying even though there is there's a legitimate amount of evidence to support that Um, it's not it doesn't you don't have to look very deeply to find those connections but if someone who didn't look like me said that and some people did some people did right or some people would share my words um, and they, they got none of the pushback. They got none of the hatred. Yeah. They got, they did not get DMs calling them stupid pretenders, fat, uh, racial slurs. Yep. They got none of those things. Right. But I did. Right. Um, pretty consistently. And so I'm like, dude, like sometimes it's just random people <laughs> with an Instagram following and people yeah. will follow them to the ends of the earth. If you look a certain way, you're much more likely to be believed. Meanwhile, 
I there's absolutely nothing I can say to be believable. I have credentials. I refuse to put them on Instagram. Right. Like I think it's I think it's like I think it's unnecessary. Like you yeah. shouldn't just believe someone because they put random letters behind their name. Exactly. But even even in a recent post, like the number of people who are like, "You're so well spoken. You're so well thought out. Uh, like like you you think so well. You explain this so well." And I'm like, "Well, it is my job to <laughs> like facilitate conversations about mental health and discuss mental like." illness and mental health challenges like this is quite literally what i do and what i went to school to do we've yeah. talked about we've talked about this friends um <laughs> right. and and every single time every single time it happens and they'll still kind of punt it up to some other person to then be validated yeah and i'm just like Psh. and so then it's like well i'm out right because you can only uh you know to uh, i don't know why my brain went to a random biblical reference this is absurd but to kick against the pricks i don't know why that is but i like that double entendre of pricks right i don't it's not worth all of the energy and well-being to continue to kick against the pricks when the pricks just won't leave anyway yeah right um and there were some pretty high profile i guess you could say cases of this kind of you know it's calling it pushback is is bogus because it was racism there was some serious racist backlash to some of the most benign content simply because there were black people being highlighted Mm -hmm. right by some of these organizations again nonprofits, things that have a, a pretty big presence um but the 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 disgusting vile racism that came as a response to that uh you know, the people that were the target of that, that hasn't gone away. No. Right? The organizations on whose platform and or on whose account this was happening, that's long in the past. They don't have to think about it anymore. Right? Um, so, yeah, that... And we've kind of gone into that uh, realm of... Oh, uh, no. Diabetes online community stuff gets really yeah, messy. Yeah, it, it's, it's so messy. And I don't, <laughs> I was going to say a lot of it, I don't. I try to stay out of yeah, and I don't really care about. For sure. the un, Yeah, the absolute undercurrent of racism, classism, and ableism, frankly, because for a bunch of disabled disabled folks, whether we accept that descriptor or not, people can be really, really ableist, yeah. which is part of my experience with Claire, because even other diabetics will be like, I don't understand why you need a dog. Right. Like, just get a Dexcom. And I'm like, well, it doesn't, I'm glad it works perfectly for you. This doesn't right. work perfectly for me. I much prefer my fuzzy, like, alternative. She's cute. That's right. And Frankly, it's a lot nicer to be woken up by this sweet little thing than the absurd, annoying, repetitive beeps and clangs and all that stuff of the Dexcom alerts, too. absolutely is. Like, I much prefer Claire to being kind of screamed out by Dexcom at 2 o'clock in the morning. Like, it's a much better alternative. I would imagine so. Even if it's barking, listen, I'll take that. Uh, (laughs) Because I don't have... Uh, I don't live with diabetes myself. My wife does. Mm-hmm. And uh, so those, it's not a Dexcom, but that CGM alarm, I mean, it, it wakes me up every time, right? But here's the, but this gets back to that issue. I am the one often that wakes up and then checks on her and has mm-hmm. her do a test or whatever. And so 
this goes back to this point. Well, just get a Dexcom. No, that doesn't jive. I'm sorry. That doesn't actually work for everyone in every context. I'm sorry. Yeah, it really, really doesn't. And I, I know that some people will sing those praises from like the rooftops and I get it. It's a oh, major yeah. advancement. I love it. I'm glad that it exists, but it's also not like Claire is more accurate than any CGM. She yeah. always has been. Um, very rarely is Claire wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I have had very few experience where Claire has alerted and there hasn't been a reason for it. The most common thing that happens is Claire will alert. I'll check. I'm in range and I'll be like, Claire, what are you doing? And then like 15 minutes, I'm somewhere chugging juice there you are. Yeah. because she, she's so far ahead of it. Um, so yeah, it just, for me, it works out a lot better um, on top of just being cute and fuzzy and fun um because i yeah like i love having a dog but but like really practically saves my life hands down especially as someone who especially as someone who lived alone um for most of the time that i had her yeah and that's that's where it gets really tricky right because i uh my wife and i've talked a, a number of times both on the show and uh outside about times when you know, when she was living by herself or with roommates, but the roommates are gone or, you know, there are times when I've been out of town for work or whatever. And if there is some kind of emergency and this person is alone, then what? Right. And there have been some very scary moments that are part of that. And so having a companion that also helps your like health and well-being in that context, that's amazing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, I wanted to have a chance to talk, if at least briefly, however uh, we can, about your work with and also generally about the Diabolemia helpline. Um, because I was unfamiliar with this until you mentioned this and brought this up. Oh, okay, cool. So the Diabolemia Helpline is an org that was kind of founded by uh, someone who experienced diabolemia before it had a name, mm-hmm. um, really wanted to put together, essentially, like we have the Domestic Violence Hotline, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, somewhere that you can call anywhere in the U.S. And certainly, I'm pretty sure there's someone who answers kind of globally at times. You can mm-hmm. always send an email uh, and someone will respond to you and help you find resources near you. If you are experiencing uh, an eating disorder or you think you're experiencing an eating disorder and you have diabetes. Additionally, and this is some kind of upcoming stuff with Diabolemia Helpline, really working towards just generally offering mental health resources for folks. So if even if uh, an eating disorder in particular isn't what you're experiencing, but you're just like, My, something is wrong. Like I am yeah. not feeling okay. And I think diabetes is playing a part in it. You can kind of get in touch with someone at the Diabolemia Helpline. I think we're going to start calling it DBH yeah. uh, at, at DBH and they will work through with you how to find resources in your area. Often they're going to send you a list of what they are. Uh, if you're in crisis, they'll get you kind of handed over to some crisis professionals and things of that nature. So it is a really, really awesome resource uh, for folks to access um, because these aren't these aren't things that are readily available 
uh, in most right. of our areas. Uh, I work Certainly. in my local, yeah, I work in my local mental health authority. We certain if someone called our crisis hotline where I work and they're like, I'm a diabetic and I think I have an eating disorder. My coworkers, bless their hearts, would be like, uh, eh, well, I don't well, you know, I can't. I don't. Are you in crisis? Crisis? Like, do you need right. to go to the ER immediately? They wouldn't really know like what to ask, and mm-hmm. through no fault of their own, they don't have that training. Right. Um. But if you call um Diabulimia Helpline or send them a message, we can at least get you to a professional who has some of that experience, has taken trainings, um, and is much more familiar with what it would look like for someone with diabetes to be in crisis. Hearing that, so this is kind of future direction of DBH that's kind of expanding out from eating disorders specifically. Is that what? Yeah. 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 So certainly it, even now, if someone is struggling and you call, because frequently, um, and this is one thing, something I just touched mm-hmm. on on Instagram pretty recently, frequently sometimes we latch onto those big terms that exist in the community and in the eating yeah. sphere because we need we need some assistance. We need some support of some kind. Um, diabulimia is a real, is a real fun kind of catch buzzword that took off and where a lot, I think, conversations about mental health and diabetes started from. Cause I know mm-hmm. years ago, burnout was only talked about in the context of you're not checking your blood sugar. Your A1C is terrible. Maybe right. it's burnout. Um, but we started having more kind of nuanced conversations about what does anxiety look like? Mm-hmm. What does depression look like in general? Those have always been very kind of closely related to conversations about eating disorders and diabulimia in particular. Yeah. So it's often the first kind of mental health thing that people hear. Um, so it's a really easy thing to be like, maybe that's what's wrong. So right. certainly if you fall anywhere along the spectrum with mental health and you're just like not sure where to turn, Diabulimia Helpline, DBH can point you in the right direction of finding some professionals who can help you. That's um, fantastic. Our, yeah. Our goal is always to get folks to some appropriate professional help. And I know both from personal experience and in talking with others as well, it can be very hard to connect with someone uh, in your local like area, whether it's in person or virtually right now, uh, that can be a really hard process to actually find someone to connect with. And so having <laughs> folks who have an idea of what kinds of resources are actually out there and available, that's actually, that's invaluable. Yeah, it's a really, really kind of great organization. We always need volunteers to help with the hotline hey. and to answer emails and stuff. Folks, we always, always need come to dedicated volunteers. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And most of the people who are involved with DBH have been involved for years. Yeah. Uh, so they have a ton of experience, really non-judgmental because a lot of, a lot of us have been where the folks who are calling in have been. Right. Um, well, um, so is the, uh, is the website diabulimia helpline dot, is it org? You would think I would know that off the top of my head, but it is diabulimia org. Okay, so diabulimiahelpline.org, and we'll have this in the show notes as well as the phone number that's listed there, um, all of the ways to be able to connect with these folks who have connections to the resources that folks might need. So, um, Taylor, thank you so much for coming on the show today and 
uh, talking through all these things. It's been a really, uh, really great opportunity and I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I know. I'm sorry. I'm getting an alert and a very like angry dog face. (laughs) Well, that's a perfect time (laughs) for us to wrap things up. All right. So that was a fantastic conversation. Yeah, definitely. Um, Touched on a ton of things. And so we're going to try and like dabble. (laughs) <laughs> in and among all of that. Oh, there's so much to talk about. Because there's a ton. Um, but I do want to start by kind of calling back to that initial conversation. Because we always start interviews with guests. This doesn't apply the same way to our highs and lows series because mm-hmm. you start that out. Because, um, you know, that's a conversation with a family member about shared experience. It's a little bit different context. Sure. With these other guests, we always start with this question, what's your relationship with bread and what's your relationship with diabetes? Um, I I don't think I had, until that conversation, thought about that framing mm-hmm. uh, in a way that may be reinforcing certain problematic ways of understanding like chronic illness or disability. Yeah, and I, well, I think it's interesting because you have a relationship with diabetes outside of yourself. And that's kind yeah, of what she was yeah, touching yeah. on. And so for you, that question makes sense in the way you're asking it because you have a relationship to my diabetes outside right. of yourself. And it, I love that she brought that up because I don't really think about, I hadn't really thought about it either mm-hmm. because it is just a part of me. right? And I don't have a relationship to it so much as, what is your story? Like, what is your, like, you know? So that is a really interesting point as, you know, it's something that lives within you. And so, you know, I loved how she was talking about, you know, I don't have a relationship to it because it's always just a part of me. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. um, But yeah, that was fascinating to me too. Yeah. And, you know, she's pointing to reasons why she has, Mm -hmm gotten to a place where she is conceptualizing this in this way because creating that kind of like conceptual distance between yourself and your what's what is a physiological process in your body Mm -hmm. creating that conceptual distance separates part of you from yourself Mm -hmm. and so you know we talked a fair amount about mental health that process of like separating yourself to sh- to cut off or shut off part mm-hmm. of yourself from the quote unquote you <laughs> that you're trying to understand and maintain that's not yeah. sustainable yeah right and in some ways this does also kind of go back to very early conversations in the show with Heather Walker when she was talking about some of the complexities about understanding oneself in relation to diabetes Mm -hmm. and identity and that I like label of something like diabetic even and claiming that. Yeah. And Taylor kind of mentioned um, in part of her interview about how your diabetes and your experience with diabetes is constantly changing. And so Mm -hmm. I think at different points in your life, maybe there are points when you are pushing that part of yourself as an outside part of yourself to deal right. with it emotionally or right. 
you know, the trauma of certain experiences that sort of do that um, can also kind of change how you view that part of yourself. So, And as we know, (laughs) individually and kind of uh, collectively shared whatever, yeah, we don't always make the most healthy decisions on how we deal with <laughs> like yeah yeah certainly traumas but mm-hmm. mental health related things um physical health related things we don't always make conscious and healthy decisions for ourselves <laughs> right um it's impossible i mean we're human of course. beings so yeah and uh but i you know it gets it gets me in a place of trying to be more aware Mm -hmm. to take a critical eye to my own frameworks right um which i've also been kind of writing into right now as i've been thinking about identity and things more well and i think that's so important that's why we're here right that's why we're doing interviews with people so that we can even myself as a diabetic i listen to other people who have diabetes talk about their experiences Mm -hmm. and it opens my lens into diabetes outside of myself and I think that was a huge part of what struck me with your conversation with Taylor is sort of this miss with Hmm. people not being empathetic about other people's experiences even within their own community you know and I think she expressed her kind of frustration with not fitting into these online communities and um, or the physical ones. But yeah. Right? For those in You know, because of race, because of her, the way she treats her diabetes, the way she, you know, interacts with her chronic illness, you know, and it's right. so frustrating and surprising. I guess not surprising. We kind of yeah. talked about this like unexpected, but not surprising, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know because. Right. You know, someone who has diabetes, you know, telling you, why do you have a dog? Like, just take care of yourself, you know, <laughs> like, right. oh, there's so, so much nuance into diabetes treatment that for someone who is, you know, it kind of shows how, you know, how difficult it is to be diabetic, I think, is yeah. what it comes down to. And for me, I think it's outrageous to somehow assume that you know everything about being diabetic because you can't. Like, Yeah, of course. You know? Because there is no such thing as the same experience as another person. Yeah. That's not possible. And one of the things that I think is really important about the way she was talking through both some of these conversations about the diabetes online community mm-hmm. and a lot of resistance that she has, I mean, resistant, that's a super benign way of <laughs> describing what is, frankly, racist backlash Yeah. to her in any way, really, calling attention to her actual lived experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is equally true in conversations like we just mentioned with in-person diabetes community meetups and that kind of thing, but also all of these other contexts when she's talking about this experience at the hotel, right? Yeah. When... We are talking about uh, various experiences, period. People do not, cannot, ever live in this world in relation to one aspect Mm 
of themselves or their identity, Mm -hmm. right? One's chronic illness or disability is a part of that. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the way that we were talking through this here makes it very clear. We exist in relation to our racial identity. We Mm -hmm. exist in relation to our gender identity. Mm -hmm. And this expands into, I mean, spaces like this hotel. Uh, This also then intersects with class identity and um, obviously disability and all those things that we don't ever just live as, right, as diabetics. Right. That's not a thing. Right. And so, but here's here's what's important, though. (laughs) It is assumed that that is possible. Right. And so when it's a diabetes community, supposedly, that's the thing that brings us together. Right. Right. And so if one is otherwise normative, right, experiences their position in society from otherwise normative intersections besides mm-hmm. this chronic illness, that doesn't ever really have to be talked about because the norm can go unmarked. Right. That's part of why and how norms function, right? And so expressing experience outside of the norm, Mm -hmm. then being met with that kind of pushback and resistance because it's raising all of those issues in this space. This space isn't about those things. And it's like, well, no, actually... You know what? It is. (laughs) It absolutely is. Um, And who are you to police like what I'm bringing into my community experience here like exactly (laughs) who are you to tell me i can't talk about my race or my gender or my experiences you know why why disclude i think there's a lot of that sort of exclusion of well we don't want to bring that in here we don't want to talk about that here because we're talking about this and it's like well this is part of that like my her experiences at the hotel was not just about her disability or the dog or the dog you know it was about her race it was about her you know not being believed as a woman Mm -hmm. as a black woman Mm -hmm. with an alert dog you know and she kind of i don't know if this was in her article or what she talked about on um in the interview in the interview but she talked about you know i had to hand she had to finally talk to this other white woman on the phone Mm -hmm. to basically clear it up for me right you know and (laughs) that's disgusting yeah absolutely it is you know um and that i i think that language around disbelief right disbelieving experiences Mm -hmm. of women experiences of black women in particular Mm -hmm. in this context as well um there are reasons for that this is big picture stuff. Right. This is large scale unpacking of American culture. Mm-hmm. This is reaching back to people like Zora Neale Hurston. Yeah. Right. Who made the claim that black women are the mule of the world. Yeah. Right. hundred years ago. And the reason she made those claims are still evident in conversations like this one. Yeah. Right. And so it does. It gets back to this point of there is no extricating one part of yourself to exist in this space in relation to your chronic illness. Mm -hmm. 
or in this space in relation to your race or class or other like random interest, right? In those communities (laughs) where it's like, I'm a fan of this or that. You can't just exist in a space in relation to one part of yourself because that's not you and yourself. You're Mm -hmm. a whole person. Um, But the gatekeeping maintains spaces of norm and privilege. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the key here. Yeah. Right. People don't want to feel like they are in any way connected to these large scale structures of power. Yeah. Because it's uncomfortable. Right. It triggers that kind of white guilt narrative and all that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff that is really uncomfortable. Yeah. But guess what? (laughs) The uncomfortability of white guilt is not worse than the actual experiences of oppression. Right. End of conversation. Right. It's not. Yeah. And so it's something that we need to understand and ask questions about our experience in relation to these things too. Right. And listening, you know, listening to someone else and setting your judgments and your opinions about an experience they're sharing with you about themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, and not discounting what they're saying. I think that's hard for everybody to sort of take yourself out of the equation of someone else's existence and their story that they're telling you, you know, I, gained a lot of understanding about medical alert dogs specifically for diabetes from this interview alone, you know, I've, it's crazy. Yeah. And, you know, setting aside some of my, you know, well, that's something I couldn't afford or, you know, that's, Mm -hmm. you know, unreachable. So it doesn't make sense to me. And, you know, we all have those things initially that come into our mind I think, you know, of something that's built into us, right? Discrimination that's built into us. Yeah, we're socialized. That's why you have to become uncomfortable and fight those things that are ingrained in our society because they're bullshit. Right. Yeah. You know, like, let's keep on working to get rid of these stigmas and, you know, keeping people oppressed for ridiculous reasons, you know? Yeah. Um, and there was, a, there was a really big example of this in the diabetes online community a couple of years ago. Um, right. In the summer of 2020, everybody and their dog. Ha <laughs> ha. Oh, right on. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, so funny. Mm-hmm. Everybody and oh their God. dog uh, was interjecting into this conversation about race and society. Right. With the mass uprising globally of Mm -hmm. people in relation to systemic violences enacted upon black people and black bodies. Corporations everywhere, that includes nonprofits, Mm -hmm. were more or less having to enter the conversation and make some kind of uh, more concerted effort because a lot was being demanded Mm -hmm. by the people. Right. And so there was a lot of that kind of cultural social pressure. Um, This happened with uh, no surprise. This happened in relation to a number of the uh, big nonprofits in Mm -hmm. relation to diabetes and and type one in particular. Uh, And one of those had featured a couple of um, black women with diabetes on their Instagram page 
on a Friday afternoon, put up this feature, uh, basically, I mean, general conversation about their experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and then apparently clocked out for the weekend because there was intense racist backlash that went wild in the comments on this Instagram post. And it was vile. It was horrendous. Mm -hmm. And these people were being directly targeted from all sides, virtually. And it was disgusting. And it was a long time before the organization realized what was happening in the comments and eventually took the post down and then had to make responses and this whole thing. But the point is, the very presence of black women in that space was seen as a kind of violation of their, quote unquote, their space Mm -hmm. to talk about diabetes. Um, And that gatekeeping is, is a big part of, I think, how this plays out in a lot of these different scenarios. But this wasn't the only focus of our conversation with Taylor today, (laughs) right? Um, And a lot of this conversation about her experience with the trainers and getting Claire Mm -hmm. and this whole process was something completely new to me. Yeah, really fascinating. I loved how she talked about when she got there and all the dogs came (laughs) up to the door like, test. Oh, something's like something's hi, going hi. on. Whoa, whoa, whoa! What's going on? <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, good dog. Everybody gets a treat, right? <laughs> that was great. Um, and that, that immediate kind of oh, yep. Well, I guess uh, I guess I'm a believer because here we are. <laughs> um, but the intensity of the vetting process, yeah, is uh, that's yeah, it's wild and really cool. I mean, sure. if you think about it, trying to train a dog to do something like that is crazy. I mean, it is really cool yeah. Um, for them to, you know, you would have to have a extensive training because it's not just obedience training and learning how to like exist in the world where animals aren't, you know, aren't treated. Aren't built into the world. Right? Yeah, yeah. There aren't spaces built for animals, right? Right. And that is inherently, you know, disingenuous to people with disabilities who like right. really are helped by these animals and it's incredible the way that they are trained. You know? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, because it's, uh, we're talking about building a set of expertise. Mm-hmm. We don't usually talk about that with animals, mm-hmm. right? That's understood as a human social sure. process, building expertise, mm-hmm. but that is what the training process is mm-hmm. with these dogs. And it's remarkable. Yeah. Um, she was talking about how in the five years that Claire has been with her six years since she's been involved in the training, Mm -hmm. but five years since Claire has been with her, she can probably count on one hand the number of times that she has inaccurately alerted her. Right. Which is incredible. In five years. (laughs) I mean, that's better than my own accuracy. (laughs) I was going to say, how many times has your CGM inaccurately alerted you? Not a countable number, you know? Sure. And that's like <laughs> recent. <laughs> right? So, yeah, no, it's uh, it's in and of itself. The, well, and it's remarkable. In the way that she's talking about her um, like dropping really fast because yeah. I have that, too. And mm-hmm. 
that is terrifying, you know, and having living alone and not having, you know, we talk about this a lot because of the worry of, you know, that something like this happening while I'm alone or when I'm just with the kids right. and, you know, I, that fear of something happening and having that sort of comfort of having that animal kind of there to help you is, is amazing. That's yeah, incredible. Certainly so. And, uh, I, I, there were a couple things there that I thought were particularly fascinating. Um, among all of the actual work that's being performed by the dog, because that in and of itself mm-hmm. is uh, fascinating and warrants a lot of discussion. But uh, I was also particularly struck by the way that the, her relationship with the trainers yeah. is essentially indefinite. Mm-hmm. Right? That's Moving really cool. forward. Um, have been deeply involved in the continued training and experience with Claire, Mm -hmm. but also any other needs that Taylor may have in relation to life with her service dog, right? So that that kind of relationship being built there, um, again, not something that I expected to see in relation to yeah, the this, right? the sort of after, and it seems she was clear that this isn't like across the board, right? right. That all places do this, but that seems like now that I've heard her talk about that, like, yeah, that makes total sense that you would, right. because a dog changes over time too, right? Big time. And your yeah. like experience changes over time too. And so those questions, of course, would come up. Adjustments. And, you know. You've got to adjust. <laughs> Over right. the span of five years? Are you kidding me? Of course you adjust things. <laughs> or in 10, five years. 15, you know, but, I mean, however, yeah, the life of the dog. That right? means the dog is adjusting too, mm-hmm. just like you are. And so she can call up and be like, hey, I think my dog is broken. <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> love that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so funny. Um, the other side of this too, because we've talked a fair amount about kind of mental health uh, mm-hmm. and resources and things, uh, she talked about the way that the needs of the dog are also part of this conversation. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the dog is there to meet some of your needs, but she is responsible to meet some of the needs of the dog. And so she's got to be out. Yeah. She has to be out at least an hour and a half a day. The dog needs Mm -hmm. to work. It needs to exercise. And she has to make changes in her own world yeah. in order to do that she for the She was talking dog. about, you know, eating breakfast to make sure that your numbers are doing, you know, yeah. this sort of like co-relationship of doing yeah. this so the dog isn't, you know, constantly having to alert me because that would be a stress, right? The dog's like alert, alert, you know, like yeah. take care of yourself. And so you're then inherently taking care of yourself because of this like relationship. Because you're caring for the dog. The dog. Right. Mm-hmm. So then it's this, yeah, it's this mutual care relationship back and forth, which again, that's really fascinating, is unexpected from an outsider because mm-hmm. I am an outsider in this kind of experience. Sure. And I see those experiences and it is narrated in a way that is they are for the person. And that's not right. the way that we just talked through this Mm-mm. with Taylor at all. Yeah. You know? 
Um, and on that note, um, we wrapped up that conversation in relation to some other mental health related things because mm-hmm. she brought up um, in some other conversations that led to then this discussion, she brought up that she is on the board of the Diabolemia Helpline mm-hmm. and uh, works with them. And we so talked a little bit about some of the resources that are available right. there. Um, and I was not familiar Mm-mm. with this until she brought it up and uh, made me aware that this was a thing. Mm-hmm. And it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And talking about, she talks a lot about it on her Instagram, mm-hmm. um, sort of the different facets of it. Like it's not right. just this one thing. Like there's so many different areas where, you know, eating disorders can touch a diabetic's life. Um, yeah. Which is fascinating. And, you know, talking about how this term doesn't really fit <laughs> everybody's experience and trying to widen that, mm-hmm. um, you know, definition of what this means for someone with diabetes. Yeah. And uh, opening up the space mm-hmm. to be able to actually facilitate that conversation mm-hmm. in a way that will be helpful right, for people. And then hopefully, you know, educating other areas of, um, you know, people who are mm-hmm. helping diabetics, you know, other right. therapists, you know, other therapists, the other hotlines or other neurologists. Yeah. Um, and how to talk about this, how to yeah. talk about it with your patients, how to, you know, right. Because I think a lot of times you don't understand what you're going through. And Certainly. we kind of talked about this, like, how are you supposed to know, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like that this thing is this, or this is happening to you because it's just, what you're experiencing. Right. And I think a lot of times in mental health, that's kind of what happens. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the point of therapy, Mm -hmm. right? Therapy is a, in part anyway, therapy is a process Mm -hmm. through which you are able to talk with others in order to build understanding about your experiences cognitively and emotionally Mm -hmm. and have some language to be able to actually talk about it and understand Mm -hmm. right building understanding by gaining tools right Right. that is the whole point of therapy Mm -hmm. and you can't do that without having first of all some kind of language right to use to have a conversation (laughs) right but also then access Mm-hmm. to those resources Definitely. and i think that's a big issue right access to mental health resources is a massive problem yeah and we talked about this a little bit there at the end of this conversation but what's important here i think is that the diabolemia helpline dbh mm-hmm. because they are expanding a lot of the focus there mm-hmm. but dbh is 24 hours 365 mm-hmm. right which is awesome and they are there to help connect you with people who can help and who might have some of those other resources right, within your available networks. within your networks um, and or within your like general vicinity mm-hmm. if you need them uh, physically. So um, we will be linking the website and providing the phone number for the Diabolemia helpline uh, in the show notes. Mm-hmm. down below here but uh, as we mentioned it is 
diabolemiahelpline.org. And the helpline phone number is 425-985-3635. So, um, but yeah, this, uh, this whole conversation in all of those various aspects was a really valuable one. Yeah. And uh, um, I really appreciated a lot of the ways that I have come away from this um, understanding a little bit more. Yeah, and we hope so. these conversations kind of help others as well in that same way that we are, as we are learning about something that we feel uh, particularly knowledgeable in, right? Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, we can always learn more. And I think mm-hmm. if more people understood that and like applied that, <laughs> you know, cause we are learning that mm-hmm. as we are doing this, even for me, you know, I think hearing other people's experiences has really helped me kind of think more broadly outside of my own experience mm-hmm. and how my experience kind of isn't everybody's experience. I think we all inherently know that. (laughs) Um, But to be reminded of it more frequently is a good way to try and, you know, live your life (laughs) outside of yourself. All right. That wraps up episode 11. Thanks for being with us. Uh, Thanks for listening. Check out our show notes to find links to Taylor and... Um, some of the other things we've discussed in this episode. And head over to uh, diabretic.com in part for the show notes. But uh, as we expand on some of these conversations in the blog forthcoming, some of that will be there. Um, We are building out our resources tab there. And so we will include some links to the uh, Diabolemia helpline there as well. So uh, like and subscribe wherever it is you're listening and we will catch you on the next one.